You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. How accessible are your yoga classes? And do you have a way of measuring that? When we're first learning a new skill, there is a tendency to want to measure our progress and evaluate our failures or our successes. In order to do that, it's really important to have teachers who've gone before us to give us an idea of the big picture, because on our own, we tend to get lost in the details. That's why I was so excited when today's guest, Victoria Thor Hudson, offered to share her framework for accessible community-oriented yoga classes with us. Accessibility is multi-layered and nuanced, and it doesn't lend itself easily to formulas or directives. So using a framework like the one that Thor offers us is not the same as actually doing the difficult work necessary to make your classes accessible. However, I really appreciate the work that Thor has done to dissect the different components of an accessible community-based class because it can be used as a guide for exploration and also a checklist to help us stay on track. My guest today, Victoria Joy Hudson, who goes by Thor, is an experienced registered yoga teacher, a Yoga Alliance certified continuing education provider, a registered nurse, and has a master's degree in nursing education. Thor specializes in providing anatomically accessible patterns of movement in her classes. Thor believes that yoga should be functional and it should support us both physically and mentally as we navigate activities of daily living off the mat. So let's jump right into this conversation where Thor shares a bit about her journey from teaching physically challenging classes until her current focus of multi-layered accessibility. Plus, we'll also hear her five-part framework for teaching accessible community-based classes. After the conversation, I'll share a few reflections and thoughts of my own. So I'll see you on the other side. Thor, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here, especially after our interview on my podcast. Just, I mean, everyone loved your content that you put out. Oh, thank you. That is really nice to hear. It definitely, you know, as you know, as a content creator, we put a lot of heart and soul and effort into it, and it helps so much to hear the positive feedback. Yes, it really does. It's one of those uh, motivating factors because it can be very uh, lonely sometimes. You're like, I'm behind my computer putting out all this content and I, I hope people enjoy it. Hopefully they're utilizing. Yes, for sure. So today we're going to talk about your five pillars of accessible community classes, which I'm super excited about. And before we dive into that, I'd love to hear a bit of your story of how you first discovered yoga and why you decided to become a teacher. Uh, so my name is Victoria and I most often go by Thor. I've been called Thor since I was a small child. So probably around seven or eight years old. Um, surprisingly, you know, our job as teachers and also content creators, podcasters, educators has a lot to do with public speaking and speaking out. I 
used to have a really bad speech impediment growing up. <laughs> um, I couldn't say my R's for the longest time. And my nickname, although it sounds really like strong and mighty, it is, I think, but it also comes from humble beginnings because my name kind of evolved from Victoria to Tori to Tor. And with my speech impediment, it kind of evolved into Thor and it stuck from me being a small child. So I am better known as Thor and that's usually what I go by, but you can call me whatever you want to really. I found yoga when I was about 18 years old. So at that time I had just started adventuring into the profession of nursing. And when I say just started adventuring into, I was actually just, you know, taking my prerequisites and kind of exploring it. I had worked in a dental hygienist office, and then I went to work as a nursing assistant in a hospital in a post-traumatic care unit. And there I met some other fellow friends, nursing assistants, and they ended up inviting me to a yoga class. And that was in Santa Barbara, California. And so I went to my first donation-based yoga class ever. And then I, I got hooked. I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. This is it. This is, I was really interested in health and wellness, obviously, as you know, can kind of be seen by my path as going into wanting to be a nurse. And so yoga seemed like an awesome additional and or alternative complement um, path into health and wellness. Um, so nursing school was really challenging. <laughs> um, so yoga was just this amazing supplement to keep me grounded, to keep me connected to my mind and my body really helped carry me through. And then as I graduated, um, went into working as a nurse, it still uh, carried me through and was really helpful. I mean, it can be a really mentally, emotionally, and physically exhausting work process. And so yoga was just always there as a tool for me, keeping me grounded and making me realize that this is also something that I want to offer either my peers, my community, my patients, whatever it was. And so I decided to go to my first 200 hour about seven years ago. And so my first 200 hour was in, was a destination program and it was in Nicaragua and it was with the Megan Curry teacher training or exhale yoga retreats. And I was still working as a nurse. So I started seven years ago, just teaching a class once a week and then two classes and then four classes. And I'm still kind of trying to juggle this like full-time nursing. And then I moved out to Austin and I got, I was started to work part-time nursing and then started taking on more classes, teaching and teaching. And then I realized there was a certain point. I had also gotten my master's degree in nursing education. There's a certain point I realized that I no longer wanted to be in the profession of nursing. 
I wanted to be in health and wellness, but nursing was no longer the avenue that I wanted to promote well-being in. And so I made a decision to leave. But as you very well know, we need a plan. Like there has to be a strategy. Um, For me, I didn't want to just, and this is where a lot of like stuff like your podcast and mastering business of yoga and like um, really important um, pieces came in for me because I had to strategize how to make this possible. So I put in this like plan to exit and, you know, find my niche and figure out what to do. And so I did, I made this plan and I left on my plan, (laughs) which was really scary and exciting. And did it turn out the way that you'd planned? (laughs) No, (laughs) no. I mean, some things, yeah, I'm, I'm teaching yoga, but also, you know, I had these like certain, um, pieces in place and, and, we have to be adaptable and we have to be creative and we have to be flexible. And some things turned out how I thought some things turned out better than I thought. And so just kind of segueing into, um, what worked. And I think now it's, it's come, I've been out of nursing for quite some years and been able to like really hone into what I want to offer. So that has been really, really helpful. I think that's beautiful. Um, such a great reminder because a lot of times we want to plan so much, but if we get attached to our plan, then it can actually derail us from the most important part, which is learning through doing, learning through experience. So that's such a great story. And so tell me how this plan, whatever you initially started with, how did this evolve into these five pillars of accessible community classes? Did you start with that as, as the intention in the beginning, or is this something that evolved over time? Great question. And this is something that evolved over time. And it was part of this like dynamic unfolding of what I saw that I was good at. And also I saw what really lit me up, which I think are, are two things that you should really consider if you're choosing a specialty, you know, like things that set you on fire and you're passionate about, but also, um, what, what, what are you good at? What comes naturally to you? Um, so for me, I was working a lot in the yoga studio settings. And so I thought that that would primarily be where I, I worked at, so I would have like these different studios that I would go to. And I would at that time, like my first teacher training was very much, um, work towards a peak pose. The person who was kind of like the main teacher in the 200 hour was very like handstand arm balance, physically empowering. And so I kind of was, I was very good at creating sequences towards peak poses and workshopping. And so I thought that that's really where I would go. I would, you know, do um, workshops and I would do trainings on it, teach other teachers how to do that. And then while this whole, you know, plan is unfolding, I got an opportunity to teach at a at the university here. Um, so we have University of Texas. 
Austin and one of the different departments wanted to have a yoga teacher that would come. And so I started going to their class once a week and teaching. And it was so amazing and so beautiful um, because I was faced with a whole group of students that was this entire mixed range, right? So you have a lot of people who had never gone into a studio space, which is something that I wasn't necessarily used to because I saw myself teaching in the studio space. Um, a lot of people who had very limited mobility, who had very limited exposure to meditation or to um, the asana. And so I found myself having to work with um, work with these kind of elements and bring a class that was curated specifically for this audience and all their abilities. And then I found it to be so incredibly rewarding. It just gives me goosebumps right now to see, you know, people who were living with pain or people who were living with a lot of chaos in their minds then be able to have the gift of this practice of yoga when they thought that they weren't yoga practitioners, when they weren't like that. Because obviously, I mean, a lot of our industry is not portrayed as like your average person who's at a desk and you have this whole depiction of what a yoga practitioner looks like. And then, so all of these normal ass people are like, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to do yoga. I'm not even going to try. And then all of a sudden there is a teacher that is coming to you and meeting you where you are and meeting your needs um, was, it was a total and complete game changer. And so from there, that passion grew and you developed these five pillars. So let's jump into them and we'll start with the first one, which is eight limbs of yoga. Like you said, the first one, it would be the eight limbs of yoga and to create accessible asana in community classes, we need to remember that asana is just one limb of yoga, right? There's all these other limbs and we need to work to integrate these into the practice so that the os so it's not just about the physical asana but it's about all of the other amazing and transformative components that this practice has to offer um, the easiest way that I found for me to integrate um, philosophy and the other limbs is by utilizing intentions and themes. And I know that for some people, um, an intention or a theme can really feel like a little gimmicky. And if you are not feeling authentic about what you're saying, it is going to be gimmicky. It's it's going to be disingenuine. So you really have to find something and they can be really, really simple things like being present, um, like connecting with the breath, like union, something that really resonates with you and your mission as you show up for a teacher and use that as a shared concept that's integrated through all of the asana. So when you are talking about being present, how do you find being present and utilize the tool of asana to notice how you're being present? And 
the Shavasana to notice how you're being present on the mat and then also off of the mat. I love that you're starting, that your very first pillar is about integrating the philosophy into the practice because one of the challenges that a lot of us have as yoga teachers is that perception that yoga equals asana. And so by making your very first pillar of these accessible community classes, sharing the other aspects of yoga, you're helping and all of us as teachers are helping to, to fix that misperception, right? To share with the general public a bit more in depth, a bit more nuance about what yoga is. And I don't know if you've had the same experience as me, but a lot of yoga teachers that I talk to are a little afraid to talk about philosophy because they think that either, like you said, it's going to be disingenuous. It's not going to land authentically or that their students are going to be turned off by it, that their students are going to feel, um, oh, this might not mesh with my own religion or this is too woo woo. And the really interesting thing that I have experienced whenever I've had the opportunity to share with people, hey, yoga is about more than asana, yoga is about more than poses, right? Usually when we're talking to the general public, we wouldn't even necessarily say asana in the beginning. We would say it's about more than poses, about more than the physical. It's really more about the presence, about how you're showing up. And they love it. They're like, whoa, you just blew my mind. You know, like people get excited <laughs> about this more. I've never had somebody like kind of clam up and I'm sure it could happen. Right. But I've never had anyone be like, Ooh, well then I don't think I can do it because the people who are already intrigued by yoga are not the ones who are really afraid of it in general. Right. The ones who are like, Oh, tell me more about yoga are the ones who are kind of open. Have you had that same experience? Absolutely. I've had that same, same exact experience. Uh-huh. People coming in, honestly, for the, the students who are coming to my class and I do integrate a lot of, um, um, philosophy and the other aspects of the practice into it, they're still going to get a great asana practice and they can just like allow whatever I say to roll off their shoulders, you know, like, yes, still give them an asana practice. Great. But an asana doesn't mean necessarily just easy. It can still be a challenging practice and really allow whatever the other stuff that I say to roll off your shoulders. Then, I mean, it's not going to take adding and integrating that in no way is going to take away from if people are just coming for the poses. Totally. So why wouldn't you end up adding in and integrating something that's going to add even more abundance and different layers and depths to the practice? Right. And potentially be what is the transformational piece. <laughs> this is what is special about yoga, right? Let's not strip it away. Yes. 100%. So the next pillar is options. Mm-hmm. And options. Okay. So options is exactly like it sounds right. We're coming in there and we're giving people options as they move in their bodies. It's as simple as that. 
Um, kind of at a closer look, I like to give options in two different ways. One would be progressions and bus stops, and the other one would be intention and dissection. So progressions and bus stops looks like from, say, you're coming into a warrior three, right? And I have my students step forward, and then they can just shift their weight into that foot. Slide your back heel up. Pause. That's enough. That's like bus stop number one. If you want to get off of the bus stop here, great. You're in warrior three. Or maybe you play around bus stop number two, kind of floating your back foot up a little bit and see how that feels. That was bus stop number two. You can get off there. Great. And then maybe bus stop number three would be, if you feel like it, explore with hovering your leg higher. You can go to a 90 degree angle. You can reach your arms forward. There's progressions all along the way. So at any way, any student can know that they are in the pose. And there is not a full expression and like a half-ass expression, right? Um, anywhere along these bus stops are perfectly for great for the journey that you're on. We're all on this different bus journey, going, stopping along the way, and you can pick which one works for you. So certainly give your students the options and the autonomy and the sovereignty to choose what feels best and most appropriate in their body on that day. Ask, also ask the poses like it's a question on every given day. Um, and the other thing that I like to do is the intention dissection. So that would be like, so for warrior three, you know, there's, there's usually two kind of intentions for every pose, and that can be an anatomical intention, or it could be like an energetic intention. So anatomically, maybe you're getting strength to the leg or uh, energetically creating balance in the body. So rather than placing the emphasis on the outside structure, finding the intention, whatever that may be for you today, maybe it's leg strength, and then allowing the focus to be there and allowing the students to choose based on that intention, what expression of the pose they want. Because if my, he if my toe is still on the ground, I'm still getting leg strength. If my foot is floating one inch or two inches or 90 degree angle off the ground, I'm still getting my leg strength and reminding that no matter what and whatever option you're choosing, if this is our intention, we're all getting that intention. I love how you have separated out these two different paths for creating the options. I've been hearing a lot of questions about how do I help students or what is my role and my responsibility when I notice that students don't know when to get off the bus. And they just have gotten this impression in their head that getting to the end of the line is somehow more valuable or gonna give them more benefits than getting off the bus earlier, no matter how much I tell them. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what's your experience with that? And, and what relationship have you come to come to with that question? <laughs> um, my experience with that is every single day in every single class, <laughs> you know, because uh, we have seen success as depicted by X, Y, and Z, you know, success as doing 1 million chaturangas in the class 
even if it's like poor form or even if your body is screaming no. And like for us as a teacher, I could see my students. And like you said, I'm saying, you don't have to do, you don't have to do this flow, put your knees down. Like here's all these options. Here's all these options. And that's a great question. And all we can do is give students the options. Um, at the end of the day, our students are their own individual, independent, most often adult human beings. And this is part of the work that they get to do and discover within themselves. Um, it's also part of the work that we get to do and discover as ourselves with teachers and letting go and not being attached to the results. One day it might click, you know, one day after giving option after option after option, it might click for those students. And our job is not to dictate when and how and where our job is to provide them with the conditions that are most appropriate and supportive for them. So I feel like that really flows well into the next pillar, which is dismantling hierarchy. Okay, so pillar number three is dismantling hierarchy, and that has to do in the classroom or whatever setting you're in. And I want to remind the teachers out there that, you know, how we show up as a teacher does not start at the beginning of the class when you say, um, hi, welcome. We're going to get started in child's pose to namaste at the end, but it starts through the entire time we are interacting with our students. Um, so I think there's a lot of really important ways in which we could work to dismantle hierarchy and then create this, uh, shared space. One of the things I talk about is that's really important is language. Um, and just being conscious of how impactful our language is. I'll say a couple of bullet points. I mean, like you said, I could go on and on about this, but um, I'm just going to stay to a couple of bullet points of how um, we can use language to either dismantle hierarchy or actually work to unintentionally create it. And I don't think that teachers necessarily are trying to create hierarchy in the classroom, but it can come out in an unconscious way. Um, so one of the ways, and I think this has kind of been a topic du jour, like a hot topic, is uh, utilizing the word fool expression. So rather than saying something like, oh, you can take the fool expression, and this, this would go directly in regards to like when you're giving options, right? The fool expression warrior three with your arms forward and your leg at a 93 angle, utilize things like your expression of the pose, your variation of the pose and allowing them to have that ownership. Because one of the things, if we are a teacher and we're giving options, but then I'm saying, oh, but you can take this full expression of dancer pose. Or if you have actually, there's this easier version. If you're just feeling like X, Y, Z today, we are unintentionally making it. So our students feel like leveled down or leveled up on our language. 
So to be more aware of how we're using those. And I think that'll also help with that question that you said before, as far as giving options, because you could be like, why aren't my students taking the options that I give? One of the reasons might be because the language that you're using when you give it. So this is really important. Finding a different creative ways to utilize your language because it's impactful and it's powerful and it's going to make a difference for your students. You know, we were talking about earlier about wanting to have a plan. A lot of yoga teachers don't want to fumble their language. They want to like show up in the front of their class and be as polished as like their teacher trainer who's been teaching 20 years. And they don't realize that the way we develop polished language is by messing up. (laughs) (laughs) Like we have to try things and they also are like, okay, I want to be creative, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to mess up. Mm -hmm. I I want, I want to be smooth, but I don't want to mess (laughs) up. And like, once you have your intention in mind, okay, my intention here is to dismantle hierarchy. Then you have to put yourself out there to try things and to watch the results. And this is just like what we're talking about with, with business too. And like with developing your career, but it, it happens in the classroom on a microcosm. I can't tell you how many times I've messed up and like all the great things I have available to teach now, mostly they came from me doing it wrong and figuring it out by being like, no, that didn't work well. Oh my gosh. And I have so many stories I could tell about like ways that I totally flubbed up my teaching (laughs) and still live in my brain. Absolutely. Same. So you you have one more, I think, uh, bullet point on the dismantling hierarchy. Yes. And that is uh, power dynamics and relationships. And I think it's just really important. Like I said, our class starts the time we are with our students is even before the class starts. So like how we interact with the students when we first see them and greet them and meet them. And so we need to be establishing conscious relationships, constantly be evaluating the dynamics of power and privilege. Um, In the spot of the teacher, we need to be aware that it is a powerful position, you know, whether you realize it or want it or not, students are looking up to you. And so to constantly be aware of this, um, there's different different types of relationships in the classroom, right? There's student to student relationships. There's teachers to student relationships. If you're in a um, different space, there could even be like teacher to employer relationships. And there needs to be this constant evaluation of how the different dynamics are playing. As a teacher, um, if we are going to work to dismantle hierarchy, like you said, we're going to make mistakes. And I think it's really cool to be able to admit fault um, when we make mistakes. Um, I think it's a great way to dismantle hierarchy if we tell, you know, some truthful stories and share um, with some sense of vulnerability about ourselves also, um, provide autonomy for students. So students should feel comfortable advocating for themselves and asking questions in and around you. Um, creating safe space. And also a big thing about dismantling hierarchy is how you are um, physically positioning yourself in the room. 
um, physically positioning yourself in the room as well as uh, your volume and clarity in the way you speak. If you are thinking about the students that are coming in, for me, I mean, I have a lot of students that are English as second language or who have um, auditory impairments. And so I try and go into a central location. Be clear. I have this uh, older man who every day he has really bad hearing and he's like, I love your class because I can hear you. <laughs> and these are things that we can actually think about that work to create an inclusive and non-hierarchical environment. I have some teachers that I know that sit in the back of the room and they talk at the students from the back and it doesn't work to um, create the uniform platform and community that perhaps I want to create in an accessible class. So be mindful of how you speak, where you place your body, how you're interacting with not only one, but all of your students. And is it in an equal way? Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think it's also important to emphasize that there isn't a formula for dismantling hierarchy, right? <laughs> There's only a formula for mantling it. <laughs> If that's a word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but basically the whole point when we're trying to dismantle structures of harm is that there isn't a playbook and a, you know, let's say um, some people do a circular classroom setup that mm -hmm. might be right mm -hmm. for you. It might not be. So it just really comes back to that theme of don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to make mistakes because as long as you keep your values front and center with these explorations, then you're going to be on the right track. You're going to grow and you're going to make progress. I really think that the biggest barrier to growth is perfectionism. Mm. And so there can be that that dynamic within dismantling hierarchy is I want to do it right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want to do it right the first time. I don't want to mess up. I don't want to go out on a limb because then I might be judged. And I really loved what you said about, and I don't know if these were the exact words you used, but what I heard was about demonstrating that it's safe to advocate for yourself specifically by go, go out of your way to admit when you're wrong, go out of your way to show that you can take feedback gracefully. <laughs> and that, you know, that's such a leadership skill right there to be willing to listen and be willing to even change if it's appropriate based on feedback. So thank you for that. And we're almost, we're like more than halfway through the framework now. The next one is support. So tell us more about the pillar of support. So support, again, is kind of divided into two. But just like you've probably noticed in throughout all of these different pillars is that this idea of creating accessibility in your yoga practice is complex and it's robust and it's multidimensional. So you cannot just like even you were saying in dismantling hierarchy, there is no 
structure. We can try and put them in boxes, but everything is overlapping and everything is interdependent. And I can't like just give modifications or, you know, options and then say that I'm creating an accessible practice for people. It's got to be trying in every dynamic that you are in and present and showing up as a teacher. So for support, you have kind of these two different areas where one of them is you're creating a supportive environment. And I think that goes in, leans into a lot of, like we were just saying, creating a safe space for people and students to feel like they can advocate for themselves so they can come in and they can be themselves. They can be honest and they can be vulnerable and be seen. And then the other thing is support as far as like the physical support of props and props are huge. I love props. I love to utilize them in practice. Um, I love to utilize them to explore. There are so many benefits of them. And one kind of thing that I like to do is I, I have seen that there is a stigma around props. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, but students are, can be not wanting to use props. So a lot of times I'll just, for the first couple goes or whatnot, just make all of the students, the entire community, including myself, work with the props, whether that is a strap or a chair or a wall or blocks or a blanket, everyone uses them. And then after that, it's like, maybe this works for you, maybe it doesn't, but at least everyone got to try it and have that exploration with it. Absolutely. In fact, I would say 80 to 90% of the time I use props, everybody's using them because there's a reason for them. We're using them for proprioception mm -hmm. or we're not necessarily using them to modify poses. Like you said, there's so many good uses for them. And when students get used to using props, as something that adds challenge to their practice. I think they're much more open to incorporating them to accommodate a body difference, like a different limb length, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, is one example of something that it just has nothing to do with your ability. It's just your body proportions. Absolutely. And I like to say that the body is, um, is never ever the problem right but we can the pose is the puzzle and we can utilize everything around us to figure out how to make that puzzle work and my favorite props for those of you who are like but i teach someplace where i can't use props my two favorite props are the floor and the wall mm, yes so no matter, no matter what, you may not have a wall, but you do have a floor and get creative with how can you use the floor to help your students sense their bodies and sense the ability to, to create stability and to create movement and to create a deeper understanding of themselves using that really solid grounded prop of the floor. So we're rounding it out with the final pillar, which is community. Tell us more about that. Working to create community. And you are working to create a shared experience instead of just an individual one. Um, that is another way where I love, why I love themes, right? We kind of talked about, um, 
integrating themes and intentions. And so that's really helpful for me because as a community, community means that it's a, it's a group of people with a shared interest. And okay, of course, the shared interest is yoga, but then you're adding a depth or a layer of like, okay, now we have this shared interest. This week, I choose a theme every week. So this week, it's listening. And our theme is listening to our bodies, just checking in, hearing what it has to say, establishing that honest communication process. So work to create community by creating that shared experience with the shared goal. That's not just the physical asana. That's not just the peak pose, but it's those other layers around it. Um, in addition to that, also uh, equity and inclusivity are huge in creating community. Um, there is a couple of things where I there's a lot of ways where we can work to create more equitable and inclusive spaces. And this is again, like been another hot topic, which I think is really cool because we're all exploring and seeking out ways where we could do this. And I just want to start by saying that yoga is inclusive by nature. You know, it is inherently inclusive and it's accessible. If our goal in yoga is this ultimate shared goal of self-realization or, you know, connection of the independent self to the universal consciousness, it is inclusive and accessible, which I think is cool and a really great way to always come back to. What are some ways that you make your classes more equitable and inclusive? Um, one of the things is we kind of touched on this is keep learning. We're going to make mistakes and the way towards progress, part of it is making mistakes. And a lot of it is learning too. And learning from people who uh, don't just look like you learn from people who have different experiences, different perspectives, and who are knowledgeable. Other ways is to honor the roots and the origins of this practice. So, you know, like we were saying, some people stray from speaking to the philosophy. I think it's really important that we honor the roots and the, yeah, they'll honor the roots, the history, the origin of where this beautiful and ancient practice and art comes from. That's also a way to be inclusive and equitable. Um, the other one, like we had talked about is constantly identifying your own power and your own privilege as a teacher as much as you may not want it or want to invite it we do have some power and privilege in the seat that we sit in and we need to be in constantly in conscious evaluation of it and what about financial inclusivity do you recommend sliding scale? Do you recommend partnering with nonprofits? How have you addressed financial inclusivity in your work? That is a great question. And as you had said in Dismantling Hierarchy, it's, more, it's not like one size fits all, right? 
For me on my end, what I do is I offer scholarships for educational programs, and then I all offer sliding scales. So it's a, rather than saying it's donation-based, it's a pay what you can. So you can come. Our goal is to make this accessible so people can show up, come as they are. We always say on our little like hashtag line is come as you are and pay what you can because we want, that's what we want people to do. We don't want anybody to not be coming to yoga because they can't afford it. And that's fortunately the model that we can sustain with my particular business, but that's not sustainable for every single model. And so just like in dismantling hierarchy there, you have to make an intentional decision to do it, but it's not one size fits all. The sliding scale works great for me. Offering scholarships works great in my business and what I've established, but you also have to find a way where you are creating equitability, but at the same time, you want to be sustainable. So you can keep on offering the things that you are trying to offer out into your community. So you're not going to serve anybody if you can't, you know, run a business. I highly encourage yoga teachers to make sure that they can pay themselves first, because like you said, it, it may be something that it's very close to your heart and it's something you build into over time, or you might experiment with some different models of inclusivity, like scholarships, sliding scale, or even partnering with nonprofits. And I'm sure that there's more ideas out there too. If you could influence yoga teacher training programs around the world, like you had a magic wand and you could be like, all right, I'm going to wave my wand. And this is how I'm going to change and influence all the teacher training programs in the world. What would be your focus? I would, I mean, obviously my passion is creating accessibility. So you're talking about options and you're talking about inclusive language, or you're talking about the power and privilege dynamics and relationships. These are really, really important topics when it comes to how we're showing up. And if listeners want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go? Yeah. Um, so I run a business. It's called The Elegant Outlaw, and we do mobile and virtual services. You can find me at www.theelegantoutlaw.com. There's also, of course, continuing education like on Accessible Asana and on Instagram at the elegant outlaw. Um, there's a period in between each one of those words. So it's like the dot elegant dot outlaw. So definitely find me on there. I also have my own podcast geared towards teachers. Madal has been on it too, which is awesome. And that's called fresh breath for yoga teachers. Thor, thank you so much for sharing this framework with us. It's such a great way to distill the different elements of an accessible class in a way that while it's not cut and dried, it really helps us to kind of wrap our brain around it. So I really, really appreciate it. One big theme that kept coming up during this conversation with Thor, and if I'm honest, really all over my life is perfectionism. It's funny how once you become aware of a certain tendency or concept, you start to see it everywhere. The first time I was ever introduced to the idea of perfectionism was in college through The Artist's Way, which I've done multiple times and found a lot of value from. But I think the conversation around perfectionism has 
gotten a lot more nuanced and has spread, especially in the past decade. I think perfectionism used to be thought of one of those pretend flaws, you know, the ones only found in really successful people. But that story has been turned on its head. And we now recognize that, in fact, many very successful people do not seem to be perfectionists. And a lot of very struggling people are. I would be very interested to see data behind this. I don't have any right now myself. But what I notice is that a lot of people who are very successful, especially in this age of tons of content, lots of putting yourself out there over and over and over, is people who don't overthink have a much easier time iterating and improving their work and learning as they go. So a lot of very successful people, while they're doing excellent work, it often contains mistakes because they acknowledge that they're still in learning mode, which really we all always will be in learning mode. The other end of the spectrum is people who believe that they won't be worthy to put things out there until they're done learning, which obviously is never. So I see a lot of yoga teachers who really agonize and overthink every single aspect of their teaching, their business, and and really their entire lives. If we think of perfectionism as a spectrum, I will admit that my own tendencies do veer that way, which is why I'm drawn to learning about it. And in some ways, I can say that taking steps to move myself towards balance in this pattern is one of the major accomplishments of my adult life. It feels funny to say that as a perfectionist because the perfectionist in me wants to point to external measurements of achievement. If you could have seen how uptight I was about this podcast in the very beginning, you would probably laugh. Now, 174 episodes later, I still have my moments. And in fact, today, for some reason, as I'm recording this, ironically, I'm feeling I'm just struggling a lot more than I usually do and stopping and starting more because that's something else that I feel really good about is uh, the progress of being able to just keep going and keep talking and leave some mistakes in. And I think the reason actually that I'm feeling a little thrown is that I feel pressure to get this recorded because they've been doing this bridge construction near my house and it's really loud. And it's not happening right now, but it's like been nonstop until like 10 p.m. And so right now I'm recording this at 8.15 and I'm a little bit worried about when they're going to start the noise again. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. Just a little meta peek into what's going on behind the scenes here. So what I want to say is that if you struggle with perfectionism, then you're my people And I get you. (laughs) And I appreciate how much you care about your work. Now, I know that perfectionism, it's like a double-edged sword, right? All that caring often leads us to get stuck. And I know from experience that getting into imperfect action does a lot more towards improving our work than waiting and agonizing over every detail. In fact, I'm coming to see working with perfectionism a lot about shifting our care, what we're focused on in this state of caring from the details to the big picture. I'll explain what I mean here. 
If you're a frequent listener, you probably know that I'm fascinated by neurobiology and neuropsychology. And I've recently been down a rabbit hole of reading and studying that includes a podcast called The Huberman Lab by Stanford University Professor of Neurobiology, Andrew Huberman. In his September 2021 episode about ADHD, I learned that people with ADHD have difficulty zooming out and seeing the big picture. We usually think of ADHD as a trouble with focus, and we assume that that focus means focusing on details, right? But it turns out it's more of a difficulty in knowing where to focus and when. People with ADHD tend to shift from narrow tunnel vision focus from one topic to another without being without zooming out and looking at the big picture to decide where it would be important to focus next, meaning their focus jumps and it doesn't jump in a really methodical way. So they switch their focus to whatever popped into their head, whatever popped into their field of vision, and they didn't stop, zoom out, and look at the big picture to decide where to focus. So this made me wonder about the overlaps between perfectionism and ADHD. And a quick Google search led me to a study from 2016 that described perfectionism as the most common cognitive distortion found in adults with ADHD. So a cognitive distortion is like a mistake in thinking, right? So when I say that working with perfectionism is about shifting our care and our attention from the details to the big picture, I'm talking about your values, what you really deeply care most about, and the work that you want to do in the world. If the focus is on this big picture of the bigger impact that your work can make in the world, then perfectionism is a distraction. And these details are almost a distraction, right? Because none of the details are actually going to be what changes people's lives. It's you showing up consistently, imperfectly, you showing up with this sense of deep connection to your work. That's what's going to make a difference. So in my experience, the best antidote to perfectionism is a strong relationship to our values and our vision. Our values being our deeply held beliefs and our core fundamental driving forces. And our vision being this sense of our capacity to make a difference in the world. The stronger your relationship with those and the more you lean on and cultivate that relationship, the less of a hold perfectionism is going to have over you. Now, Professor Huberman makes a strong case in the same podcast episode that the effects of social media and video games create outcomes in the brain that are very difficult to distinguish from ADHD. Basically, it seems like a large portion of the population are, in a sense, giving themselves ADHD through their relationship with technology. I mentioned in my last episode that I'm setting myself up to stay away from social media completely for the month of December. Now, since I record these episodes in advance, I can't report to you how it's going, but if you are inside the Impact Club membership, I'll definitely be sharing my results during our meetings, and I imagine that I'll end up doing an entire podcast about my experience in the future as well, so please keep your eye out for that if you're interested. For today, I'll leave you with the invitation to observe your tendency towards perfectionism 
and whether or not there's a relationship to the tendency to focus on details and struggle with the big picture. If so, I have a suggestion for a type of meditation that's been really helpful for me. The basic premise is to spread your awareness through the entire space of your body. A lot of meditation styles create a specific focus, such as the nostrils, the heart, or even scanning from head to toe. What I've been working with instead is to purposefully diffuse my attention through my entire body. Each time I get distracted or a thought pops up, I bring my attention back to feeling my whole body. For me, the experience of meditating in this way is really different from bringing my attention to something specific, and it feels like it soothes the tendency to be a perfectionist about meditation, because instead of having this really specific thing that I'm quote unquote supposed to be focused on, it's about softening and diffusing and expanding, and it just has a very different quality for me. So if you like, give it a try and let me know how it goes. You can email me at mado at teachingyoga.net. Remember that if you're listening in real time, I will not be accessible through social media this month. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.